We continue in this letter of Romans, the letter of good news. And I truly believe this letter is full of good news. We started into this about four or five weeks ago. The letter of Romans is going to be the main teaching for our year. We're going to live most of the year. We'll step outside here and there, but basically we're going to live in this, this letter. However, early on in the letter, we are dealing with some bad news. Because in order for us to understand the good news and fully appreciate the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And so it's not exactly the most fun text, some of the ones that we are walking and going through, but we have to deal with them so that when we get to the full fledge of the good news, we fully appreciate it and fully understand it. Before I get in today's text, though, I want to look at two verses with you, uh, which Paul had written to young man Timothy as he was training Timothy up in the ministry and training Timothy ready to be a preacher and a teacher of God's Word. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is a driving verse of our ministry. Matter of fact, if you go to our church's website and look at our values and things that we believe in, you'll find that verse there because it is an underlying verse that we believe in Scripture here at Centerpoint. It's an underlying verse that has been a, a driving verse for me and all my preaching and my teaching since the day one of being in ministry. That it says, all Scripture. It doesn't say some Scripture. It doesn't say parts of the Old Testament, parts of the New Testament. It says all Scripture is God-breathed. The word God-breathed actually means it comes from the mind and the heart of God. That what we have in our Bible, whether you are still using a paper Bible, whether you are opening up the app to a Bible, whether you're looking at the text on the screen when we look at the Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, so it comes from the mind and the heart of God. And even though we're looking at this letter of Romans that I have said more than once, the Apostle Paul wrote this, the Apostle Paul wrote this, sometimes we can get caught up to thinking, well, this is the word of Paul. No, this is not the word of Paul. God used Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit to put down on paper this letter. And so what we're hearing today is the word of God. So when we talk about today, the scriptures we're going to look at today, they are from God, not me. All right, they're not from me. They, they are from God. They are not from Paul. Yes, Paul wrote them, and we're studying what he wrote, but they come from God. And so God has given us these words. So today, we're going to be taught. I, I hope we get a good learning and a good understanding about some cultural issues that we need to understand and how does the Bible teach about some cultural issues we deal with. Today, you might feel a little bit of rebuke. You might go, oh, preacher, that one kind of got on my toes. That's God stepping on toes. That's not Brian. You might feel that. To possibly today, you may feel a little correction going on. You may go, okay, i got to make a, a, a change of course, of a change of direction. Because if we believe, and of course... Every individual in here has to make the decision. But if all of us believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, in other words, this is God talking to us, then when we hear God talk to us and God share with us, then we study it and we read it, then we have to go, am I going to obey it or not obey it? And that's hard sometimes. 
but it's a choice that we get to make. What is the goal? Paul says the goal is righteousness. Righteousness so that we are equipped to be servants of God, that we can do good work, that we can share His gospel. And so today, the scripture that we wrestle with are going to challenge us towards righteousness, towards holy living, towards honoring God so that we are good servants, so that we are righteous servants of the gospel. So before we go any further, let me pray. Because some of the text we're going to wrestle with today is going to really challenge the culture that we live in today. Father God, we honor you today. We praise you today. Lord, we want to hear from you. And God, I preach today with that mindset that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the foundation upon which I stand, your word. That's the foundation upon which I will preach, your Scriptures. That's the foundation, Lord, that we will lift up in our community, even when our culture and our community uh, maybe not a, will not agree. But Lord, we will hold high the standard of Scripture. So we're going to do that today, Father, in this room. And I pray as we hold your Scripture high today, Lord, that you would use this to penetrate minds, penetrate hearts, use it to teach us, use it to correct, use it to train, use it to rebuke, so that we are righteous men and women of God who are equipped to do your work. Lord, we ask that you do this in this room today. And we ask that you do this across uh, the mediums of media, that uh, those who are listening today and participating uh, over Facebook, Lord, would you take this message to every living room or every car, wherever people are worshiping today with us. God, would you use these scriptures to teach and train and guide us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This letter of good news is life-changing news, I promise you. The challenge is to hold on, and the challenge is to dig in, the challenge is to lean in and say, God, even as I go on this journey through the letter of Romans, and I hit some scriptures that maybe challenge me a little bit, or push on my thinking a little bit, that I'll still lean in because I have enough trust to say, God, I trust you so much that I'm going to keep studying, I'm going to keep reading, and I'm going to keep learning, going, God, I, I want to be that man or woman of God you want me to be. This letter, it's, it's about what God has done for us, but it's also about God's desire of what he wants to do in us. And that's one reason why I think it's called good news. It's the gospel. It's good news. When you understand what Jesus has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, how he has given us purpose, and we start to live that, it becomes good news. Now, many don't think they need the gospel. Many in our culture today, in, in central Kentucky, in the state of Kentucky, in the United States of America, across this world, think they don't need the gospel, the good news, because they don't understand the bad news. And unfortunately, I think sometimes we've backed off on sharing the bad news in the church. I, I think we've made it, God loves everybody, and they don't understand the, the bad news. People have a hard time comprehending how a loving God could allow or send anybody to hell? I mean, the question that many will ask, your God loves so much, and why would he dare send someone to hell? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Shall not perish. That's not a word we go around talking about a lot. It's not everyday language. It's not, I mean, I haven't said to somebody, I don't know if I've ever said to somebody, hey, I think you're about ready to perish. It's not common language. So what does the word perish mean? It means eternal separation from God. 
which is a location in eternity called hell. That's the truth of the gospel. Whether we like it or we don't like it. And people will say, well, would a loving God allow somebody to perish? Would a loving God really allow somebody to go to hell? And the answer is yes. He will. But no one, and I mean absolutely no one should, because everybody has the opportunity to be saved. No one. No one should go, but a loving God still would allow it. As we look at chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, Paul divides humanity into four groups. Groups number one is the depraved Gentile society. What we've been looking at last week and what we're looking at today, it describes, Paul is describing our Western civilization. He's describing Europe and North America. He's describing you and me in our text today and what we've been looking at. And then we're going to jump into next week as we begin chapter 2. Yes, we're going to finish chapter 1. Can I get an amen? All right, today we're going to finish chapter 1 and move on to chapter 2. You're going to see how Paul starts addressing the moralist. That's the mindset of the person who says, I'm good. Matter of fact, I'm better off than a lot of people. And because I'm better off than a lot of people, I'm not as sinful and dirty as them. Look at me, I'm great. Now, I wouldn't think nobody in this room ever thinks like that. Truth be told, we do sometimes. Truth be told, we size ourselves up and we say, well, yeah, I've got my problems. I've got my sins, but boy, look at them. We're going to address that next week. The group number three is a self-confident Jewish person. They think that I'm a child of Abraham, and how can God judge me? I'm part of that Jewish sect. I'm part of the special of the special religious people, and so there's no way that God's going to judge me because I'm in that special group of people. That's the people who are actually self-righteous. Of course, there's no one in this room here. We, we, we don't have any of those people here at Centerpoint. But, and then Paul goes on in, in the fourth group as if he hasn't already covered us, and he talks about the entire human race, another group of people. So he's like, listen, let me talk about the Gentile culture. Let me talk about the moralist culture. Let me talk about the spiritually elite culture. And he says all of us kind of fall in that, but just to make sure he covers all his bases, he wraps it up and says, every human, everybody in the human race, every single one of us are sinful. And that's the challenge of dealing with the bad news. Now, I want to review some of our texts from last week and then move into our text for this week. I think it's good to review, kind of recapture, and so we see it all within context, but also just to kind of keep us all moving forward. And for some, you're new, and you're, you're like, okay, I haven't heard this message yet, so you'll get a chance to catch up as we go through this. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What Paul is doing here is he is explaining humanity's need for the gospel. He says God's wrath. Now, we've been talking about that word wrath. That is not uncontrolled anger. That is not an explosive temper. That is not vindictiveness. That is not a God who's out to get you. But many times we think of the word wrath, and what do we think of? We think of a relationship we've had where somebody has an explosive temper or someone has uh, put their wrath on me. When, when Paul's writing the word wrath, what he's talking about is a God who is wholly hostile 
to evil, to sin. He, he, he's talking about a God who refuses to come to terms with evil, who's not neutral towards evil. God is not like us. We can see sin and turn our heads the other way. We can say, oh, it is what it is. We can say, oh, they're just being kids. Oh, that's my son, that's my daughter. We can turn our head and we can kind of ignore it. But Paul's talking about wrath. He's talking about God who says, I can't ignore sin. He's talking about a God who, who sin and, and God are like this. They're not like this. They're at odds with each other. And so when we say wrath, we're talking about God's settled hostility towards sin. Like he will have nothing to do with it. Oil and water, they don't mix. Here's the thing, though. Many times we look at wrath and we don't like to look at that side of God. We look at God's character and we want to look at God's mercy. God's kindness, God's goodness, God's love, God's, God's presence, God's majesty, how good he is, God's justice. We want to see all the good side and not see the wrath side. Well, listen, just as much as love and kindness and goodness and mercy and justice is all part of his character, so is wrath. And you can't pull out wrath and say, well, God, he's an unloving God. No, there's his wrath, but he also tells us how he deals with it. It's not just that mankind does wrong, it's that they know better. It's that, it's that Paul's getting to the fact that they know it and then they reject the truth, they reject God. Look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says, look around at nature. Just look around. Just open your eyes. And you cannot open your eyes and look around and not see God. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pay poor for speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist says, look at, you look around and the nature's not speaking, but it is speaking. It'd be like if I got up here and want to do a message, and if I just stopped and stared at you. After a while, it gets a little weird, doesn't it? After a while, you're like, please say something. Because I've got to use my words to explain what I'm trying to tell you. I've got to open my mouth, just as any teacher would do. But the psalmist says, the sun just looks and says, there's a creator. The stars hang and says, there's a creator. The clouds are big and poofy and beautiful, and they say, there, there's a creator. The ocean says, there's a creator. The fish says, there's a creator. Your hand looking at it says, there's a creator. Your eyes, the color of your eyes says, there's a creator. Your hair color says, there's a creator. Your thumbprint says, there's a creator. All this creation that is all around us never speaks, but it still speaks. There's a creator. And Paul's like, people know it. They know it. Whether they want to know it or not, whether they want to agree or not, they know that there is a designer, a master designer who has put it all together. And from this point forward, then Paul starts showing how the unraveling of an individual in a society takes place. 
He talks about how ingratitude leads to repression, revealing from last week. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. That's an attitude of ingratitude. That's an attitude that doesn't honor God. They don't honor Him. They don't thank Him. They don't go around, thank you, Lord, for the food I have on my table, Lord. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for the, for the rain. They, they don't, they're not thankful. There's a big difference between saying, I believe there is a God and honoring God in their life. Some may say, oh yeah, I can see that there's a God. I can see there's a creator. I can see there's a designer. But when you honor God with your life, you say, I submit my life to him. When you honor him, he has first place. When you honor him, he calls the shots. When you honor God with your life, he has the steering wheel of life. He's kind of driving. He's in charge. For the Christian, the focus is, God, you're first, and I follow you. Remember our sermon series from January? Putting God first. And that's what Paul's getting to here. He's like, listen, because of ingratitude, it leads to an attitude of repression, and repression then leads to darkness. When we repress the Word of God, he says, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because they're repressing God's truth. They're repressing. There is no God. I'm not sure God's word is real. I can't trust God's word. I won't follow God's word. I won't believe in God's word. They repress that. It says their thinking became futile. Now, there's another word that we probably don't just throw around. I can't tell you lately when I've just used that word futile in a sentence. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I ever have besides reading it for a sermon. So it caught my attention. I said, what's the word futile mean? It's a key word in this sentence. It's a key word in this verse. It means pointless or serving no purpose. Stop and think about that for a moment. But their thinking became pointless or serving no purpose, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when we live without purpose, when we live a life that is pointless, what do we do? We try to fulfill ourselves with something of purpose. We try to try to fill ourselves of something of meaning, and many times, then what do we do? We run towards darkness. See, when we live a life of no purpose, then darkness looks good. Christianity teaches that we were created for a purpose. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go into all the world, preach, teach, make, make Christians, baptize, help people know who Jesus is. I mean, the whole thing, sharing the gospel. We have a purpose. A futile life leads to a life in darkness. So ingratitude leads to repression, and repression leads to darkness. And now we get into some new text this week where darkness leads to a twisted life in culture. The Apostle Paul shows how life and culture have become twisted, inverted in three different areas. Area one is idolatry. Idolatry is simply a, when we substitute something else and only a place that God should occupy. A place that God should own. We say, God, I'm not going to let you own that anymore, and I'm going to put something else in that place. Look at verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchange, the word exchange means they made a trade, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like immortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, last week we talked about how that was just pictures. This week we're going to get into some more physical exchanges. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Here's the truth about humanity. Here's the truth, truth about us as humans. We will either worship the Creator or we'll worship created things. You say, well, why is that? Well, because intrinsically we are designed to live for something. We are designed to worship something or someone. That's how God has made us. That's, we are created in the image of God, and we are made that way, and we need a purpose. And if we don't have a purpose, we give up and die. You know, one of the sad things over the pandemic is the rise of suicide in our culture today. It has skyrocketed because a lot of people's purpose has been affected. The things they're living for has been affected. And when the purpose or the thing that you are living for gets affected, then it affects your mind. And then when people start thinking that way, then what do they do? Sometimes they just say, I'm done. I quit. Seen it also times with people who retire. They live their life doing a certain career and they retire. And sometimes they don't live very long because now they have no purpose to live for. See, you fill in the blank. If I have blank, it's worth living. What is your blank? If I have my marriage, okay, I'm good, it's worth living. If I have that boyfriend or that girlfriend, it's worth living. If I have security, I feel good about where I'm at in life, I'm good on that. If I have a certain position, I have this title behind my name, life is worth living. If I have these certain recreational activities that I have filling in my life, as long as that's part of my life, I'm good, life worth living. Uh, my bank account, as long as it stays at this number, my retirement account is here, I feel good, life is worth it. You fill in your blank. Idolatry is when I make my life about something other than God. What happens when that thing is gone? What happens when maybe that marriage doesn't last? What happens when that job is lost? What happens when the bank account goes down? What happens when retirement crashes because the stock market goes down? See, if we're tied to these things, then we know that it becomes idolatry. Then that's when our purpose is attacked, and then that's when we start living in darkness. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians? He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. He says, that's my purpose. My purpose in life is to live for Christ. And he says, while I'm here on earth, I'll live for Christ. But if I die, hey, that's gain. I'll go see Jesus. Praise God. He says, it's a win-win situation. Can I be really honest with you? Y'all with me? Can I be really honest with you? Here's what we do as church. Here's what we do as Christians. We say, to live is Christ, and we put a plus in there. To live is Christ, and as long as I'm the CEO of the company. To live is Christ, as long as my bank account is at this level. To live is Christ, as long as I have these toys. To live is Christ, and we add a plus in there. And so then what we would end up saying is, to live is Christ, to die is gain and loss. I mean, if I die today, who's going to take over my business? It should be. If I die today, praise God, I'm in Jesus. Somebody else can handle all this mess. If I die today, who's going to get my, my investments that I've been doing for 30 years? Where's all that going to go? Who cares? I'm with Jesus. See, the unbeliever says, my life is about 
fill in the blank. My life is about. And God is excluded from that equation. That's idolatry. The challenge for us in the church, for us who claim Christ as our Savior, is to keep it that to live is Christ and nothing else. Yes, we have these things, but they should be very low on the, on the meaning of life. Ingratitude leads to repression, which leads to darkness. And what happens is life gets twisted or inverted. That's area number two. We go from idolatry, we start to worship these things. Then life gets twisted. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Key phrase right there, three times you see it in the text. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Paul is talking about sexual immorality here. Not a topic we talk about much in church nowadays. But our country and our culture is running rampant with sexual immorality. You say, well, what is sexual immorality? Can you define it? I don't think it's hard to define. It's any sex outside the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what the Word of God teaches us. Sex outside of marriage actually degrades a person's humanity and who they are and who they're made in Christ. Marital sex actually upgrades it when it's lived in the confines of God. But we get it all twisted upside down. Sex outside of marriage, what happens is people start to use one another. People don't want to admit that, but it's true. Sex outside of marriage, we use each other for pleasure. We use each other maybe to fulfill a lustful desire. We use each other to fulfill a fantasy. We use each other for security. We use each other for getting him or her to stay with me. Maybe if I give myself sexually, then they won't let go of me and I'll still have them in my life. It's a use-use relationship. It's been said that girls give sex to get love while men give love to get sex. They're using each other. It's a barter about what can you do, what can we do for one another, or what can I get out of you, which degrades the other person and their humanity to a commodity to be used. Now, our society would never teach that. Matter of fact, if this went viral on Facebook, I'd get blasted, you know. That preacher's crazy and out of his head, he'd say something like that. Marriage, though, on the other hand, upgrades humanity. Sexual relationships and marriage is based on the desire for the other person's wholeness, for the other person's fulfillment, for joy, for serving the other person, and security blessing when it's in the confines of a godly marriage. And I put that on because I know some marriages are not that way. Because you want to do good for them and they want to do good for you. Sex inside a marriage, it exalts and it lifts up your mate appropriately within God's design for marriage. And Paul's like, listen, sexual morality is running rampant in the culture at that time. Things haven't changed much, have they? See, Paul addresses the area of sexual immorality to show how things are inverted or twisted in our culture. See, what is sexual immorality? Well, sexual immorality, let's just get, dive in a little bit deeper. That, that is the relationship between teenagers where they think, oh, we're just having fun. Maybe sneaking off, getting away from mom or dad. That is a relationship of man and woman who, who move in together and say, well, well you know, we've got we to gotta try this thing out first and see if it's going to work, see if, you know, we're going to be able to fit together and everything. And so let, let's, let's experiment with that first. Sexual morality is anything outside the bounds of marriage. That little fling with the person that you work with, no, that's sexual immorality. And God has a much greater plan and purpose. But Paul takes this a step further in verse 26. Paul says, because of this, God gave them over. 
here that's a phrase again, to their shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul's describing our culture today. And he's describing the culture of the time then. Now many will say this is Paul's teaching about why homosexuality is not God's plan, and they'll use this text as a key passage in that. And I believe this is one of several texts that speak to this area of sexuality within our culture, but I think there is something much greater going on within the whole of this text that's much bigger that God wants us to see. God wants us to understand that life gets twisted, that, that life is supposed to be this way, and we tend to twist it, and we tend to invert it and turn it upside down when we live in darkness. The example Paul uses is sexual in nature, women with women and men with men. You see that in verse 26, but it's not the only illustration, but it's a very visible illustration of the principle of the inversion of life. They would have been very clear that. Do you know the Roman emperors for 15, 14 out of 15 Roman emperors in a row were homosexuals and lived in homosexual marriages? So our culture hasn't really greatly changed. And Paul says, I want to bring up something that you see happening right before your eyes and that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Paul is using homosexuality as an example of how God and truth are suppressed and rejected and then life and his truth are inverted and twisted. We don't believe in God. We don't believe in a creator. We don't believe in the scriptures. We'll go live life on our own. And so suppress, suppress, suppress. And so now we twist it. And not only do we twist it, we turn it upside down and say, you do whatever you want to do and I'll I'll do whatever I want to do, and you go live your life, and I'll go live my life, and now life is upside down. There's an exchange. There's a trade. Verse 25, exchange truth for a lie. Verse 26, exchange natural function, how things naturally were planned by God and made it unnatural. In Genesis, God created man and woman. Later in Genesis, in the very first marriage, the man is to leave mom and dad, and the woman is to leave mom and dad, and the two cleave come together in the first marriage. Men and women, you leave and you cleave. That was God's plan for marriage, but through society, it's been twisted and turned upside down. The truth is suppressed, and now sexual sin is running rampantly out of control. Simply an illustration. Physically, once a person rejects God, all of life gets turned upside down on its head. So you see, in a society, what starts to happen? See, as a society moves away from God, a society is just a a larger picture of what's happened individually. You take individual A and they say, I don't believe in God. You take individual B, I don't believe in God, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. Individual C, God's word is not, doesn't make sense, that's old school stuff. And you go on down the line and you have all these individuals who over the years and over the time start saying God's word is no good and God's word we suppress it and we don't believe it. All of a sudden you have a whole bunch of individuals who come together and make up a society that make up a nation who now say sin is okay. And what was once good is now bad. A society in a larger picture is a picture of individual that what was good is now bad. What was once light is now dark. And what was once dark is now light. Because a whole bunch of individuals as a society starts to think like a society. It used to be 
Certain things were good, and those things that were good are now bad. Pride used to be not a good thing, but now it's a lifestyle. Turn on your social media feed for a minute. All this kind of pride. Look at me, look at me, look what I got, look what I did, look at that, blah, blah, blah. It's all pride. Our whole society has inverted its values, which leads us to a third area of darkness, which is iniquity. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, suppressing the truth, so God gave them over, third time, in these four verses, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to be done. God's act of wrath is most simply active by saying, okay, that's what you wanted? Go ahead. You want to go live that way? That's up to you. Go, go for it. You, you want to live your life on your own? You want to figure out life on your own? Go for it. All of us who have children somewhat understand this. When they get to that age, about 18 to 22, 23, and they say, I think I got it figured out, moms and dads are like, no, you, you got to do it this way. And they're like, no, I want to do it this way. No, you got to do it this way. No, I want to do it this way. And moms and dads, little by little, start to let go and say, okay, well, you're going to have to learn on your own. Okay, go for it. Go for it. Go live life. And many of us, we've been there. We look back to those 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, maybe 25, maybe for some it's 28 or even 30. We look back to those years and go, man, I wish I would have listened to my mom and dad. Man, I messed it up back then. And we're still paying for some of those sins now. But that's what we do many times. And then moms and dads, what do we do? Okay, go for it. Because we realize after a while, I can't change your mind. And you're going to do it anyway. And God says, go for it. I can't change your mind. You're going to do it anyway. In one sense, this gives you an understanding of hell. In one sense, hell is just giving individuals what they wanted. I want to do life my way. Have fun. Look what Paul says happens. They have become filled. Filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways. Invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. In life, people said, I don't want you, God. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to worship you. I want to do my own thing away from you. And so God says, hey, eternity, in hell, you don't have to worship me. You don't have to be near me there. You, you can live life however you want. All things that make life worth living, they're, they're gone. It's actually a frightful thing to have God give you everything that you ever wanted. It's actually kind of scary when God says, hey, you go have it. Because when he says, you go have it, he's telling you, you go test this world and you see how much this world will chew you up and spit you out. Because the evil one comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You want to do it that way? You go for it. This world will chew you up. God, let them have their way, and they plunge headlong into sin doing what they wanted to do. Beginning of verse 29, Paul shares over 20 different kinds of sins. You say, why? 
Brian, why don't you just count them? Well, depending on which text you read, you may see 21, 22, 24, but there's over 20 different sins. Here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency in our fallen nature to categorize sin. And I think we do this to protect ourselves, to make us feel good, to make ourselves feel better and not look at our own sinful selves. We see big sins and little sins. Big sins. Oh, murderer, the rapist, the robbers. Those are the big sins of life. And then we have these little tiny sins like gossip and lying and causing strife. And they're really not that big of a deal. Let me just say, as the church, I think we're guilty of listing sexual sin in the big sins, especially when it comes to homosexuality. Oh, I can't believe they're homosexual. I can't believe they would do that. How sinful and horrible is that? Paul's saying, listen, it's all the same. Paul's saying, listen, you, you think that you've got it all together, but you're a gossip. You're a liar. You're a stealer. You cause problems, and your sin is just as guilty as a person living in sexual immorality of whatever level it may be. I, I want you to know, Paul doesn't make a distinction. Paul doesn't make the list and say, now listen, these are all the big bad ones and these are all the somewhat bad but not as bad. You know why he doesn't make a distinction? Because God doesn't make a distinction. God doesn't look at it and say, oh, you know, you just looked at a little pornography this week. Oh, you're having an affair over here. You're horrible. Now clean that up. Not what he does. God doesn't look at it and go, oh, you're in a relationship. You're a male and you're in a relationship with another man. Oh, but you over here, you're lying and gossiping about people. You're horrible. Clean it up. God looks at it and says, you're a sinner and you're a sinner and all sin separates us from God. And that's what Paul is trying to get here, that all sin is sin. Anything that violates the standard of God's perfect obedience puts us in the path of his righteous wrath and judgment, puts us in the path where we need a Savior. And that's the point that Paul is getting to, that all have sinned. And he goes on to Romans 3.10 and says, No one is righteous. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we go through these first three chapters, we're going to keep seeing that and hearing that over and over, that we're all guilty. We're all a bunch of cracked pots. Are you in my club? Some of you are nodding your head, and some of you are still trying to figure it out. Some of you are saying, what? We are all guilty. Paul wants us to understand that. We are all guilty of sin. And then Paul closes with a warning, kind of a lookout. He says in verse 32, although they know God's righteous decrees, although they've heard of God, although they see creation, although they know he's real, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, there's a different ways to approve of somebody. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. You're fine. Or I'm not sure if I really approve of it, but if that's what you choose to do, you go ahead. But what this is talking about are those who are on the sidelines cheering. Yeah, keep sinning. That's good stuff. Move in. Yeah, I love it. Go ahead. Sex outside of marriage. I love it. Oh, you want to steal? You want to rob? You want to kill? You want to gossip? Yeah, keep doing it. Keep going. You're doing great. Keep going. It's them cheering on the ways of the sinful world. 
It's not just approve. It's like, yeah, you go jump into it. You jump headlong into it. You live in it, and you're okay. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. You live your life. I'll live my life. Hey, if you're happy, I'm happy. Yeah, as long as you're happy, we're all happy. I don't care. Whatever you want to do, just keep on going. Oh, God's Word, that thing's a piece of junk. That's an old book. It doesn't mean anything anymore to us. That God, God's Word, why would anybody read that? They're weak. See, that's what they do, and that's the world we live in, and so it makes it challenging living in a culture that this is not our home, that we're just passing through, and we say, God, I love you. God, I want to honor you. God, I want to serve you. God, I want to live a righteous life, but I have all these people cheering me on to live the way of the world. They knew his decrees. They gave approval. literally means they celebrated them and cheered them on to live in their suppressed truth ways. Now, as I close Romans 1 today, let me give you three observations that I think stand out in Romans 1. First of all, creation declares a God who designed it. When you see a river, you should say, look at God's handiwork. You see your fingerprint, man, look at God made that. You think about the color of your eyes. Look at the eye color that we all have in this room. Man, look what God made. You look at the different heights and the different weights and the different skin colors and different hair colors in this room. Or when you go to the mall, you say, man, look at what God made. You see the, the, the stars in the sky. Look at what God made. You see the sun in the sky. Look what God made. You, see, you feel the rain that hits your head. Look what God made. You see all that and you say, man, God is such a great designer. And we should welcome him into our life through his design. Second observation is we see God's wrath today. How do we see it today? The day we live in is a depiction of God's wrath. The sin that runs rampant, that every time you turn on a television, you turn on a movie, you go to your social media, it's all around us. And if you just say, God, show me sin, you will see it. And it's a depiction when God says, you want to live life your way? Go for it. We live in a culture that is more and more sinful. Thirdly, choose God now. The decision to serve God and choose God happens now, which determines our destiny, which determines our eternity. Let me close with this one verse of good news, is that God provides a way to take care of our sin problem. We're going to get more into this. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But, and that's a huge, ginormous, but, they're laughing in the background back there. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely. That's why we sing hallelujah. That's why we praise His name. The wages of sin is, if I accept the sin, and if I live in the sin, and I say, God, I don't need you. God, I suppress the truth. God, I'll handle my own sin. Then death is going to happen, an eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is that Jesus died on the cross, and we can have eternal life, and our sin is done away with. come this time of communion and every week we think about the cross every week we pick up these emblems and they remind us this is not just us having a little snack in church it's not just getting a little cracker and a little bit of juice it is a reminder that for the wages of sin is death but because i believe in jesus and my sin is wiped out praise god i'm going to keep striving and growing with his help 
I'm going to keep trusting in His help, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God,